Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibriglani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Cyril Phillip, who's a healthcare venture capitalist and principal at Providence Ventures, which manages over $300 million of venture capital funds on behalf of Providence St. Joseph, which you may have heard of, is one of the largest integrated health systems in the U.S., the firm's investments are focused on innovative healthcare companies that improve health outcomes, lower costs, and enhance the experience of patients and caregivers alike. I'm looking forward to asking Cyril about how COVID has impacted the healthcare workforce and the use of telehealth at Providence, among many other developments. And I first met Cyril at the HLTH conference last October, which I was joking seems like 10 years ago, back in Las Vegas, and I've gotten to know him and his partner, Joel, a lot. So Cyril, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Yes, I really appreciate the chance to join this podcast with you and uh, speak to your audience and, and give some context into what my firm and Providence as a broad organization has seen as a result of COVID. Pleasure is mine. And so I guess the first question I have is just telling us a bit more about who you are, how you got into healthcare venture investing. Yeah, I went into healthcare through kind of the traditional investment banking world. And so, you know, when I graduated school, um, I had a choice of joining an investment banking industry group, and I chose healthcare because when I saw the healthcare industry at that time, which was over 10 years ago, I saw it as a space that needed some innovation. Um, and being in investment banking, I spent about four and a half years I'm at UBS Investment Bank. I had a chance to see a lot of the legacy type of companies that existed at that time in healthcare. And when I left UBS and moved into the buy side, um, and eventually to Providence Ventures, I really saw an opportunity to be a part of the change that a large health system was going through in terms of finding new and innovative companies and actually implementing them. If I think back to when I started my career, a lot of that innovation was kind of limited to the private side and to more agile organizations. And nowadays, it's just, it's great to see the innovation and um, it's great to be part of such a talented team at Providence Ventures, which really enables me to work well within a health system and help drive change, um, albeit sometimes slowly, but still driving towards it. Yeah, so let's talk about pre-COVID, some of the changes you guys were most excited about, and then we'll have plenty of time to get into COVID. So all, up until 2020, what types of things were you all focused on at Providence? Up until 2020, a lot of it was focused on digital health and finding technologies which can help scale services across our health system. And so the behavioral health space, which still continues to be an important space today, was an area that we were spending a significant amount of time on just due to the fact that there's just access concerns there in terms of giving the patients the right access to care just because it's just such a a limited supply of psychiatrists. And so that was an area we spent a lot of time on. I also spent a lot of time in the healthcare workforce. Um, however, my time there was spent more on the learning and development side um, and finding ways to help train our providers in terms of new skills and, and cataloging those skills. And you know, both of those realms have kind of shifted a little bit in the in the current world, but they still are prevalent right now. I'd say in terms of you know how things have changed it really covid was just an accelerator on what we've already been looking at in the last four years um, or five years that i was here at province ventures we've just seen things heat up and seen change that we expected to happen in 
10 years happen within one year. This is actually very similar to what another Raiseline guest, Michael Gustavuson, who's a who's president of UMass Memorial, uh, told us a couple of weeks ago, which was basically up until March, they had had, I think, a total of a couple of thousand telehealth visits over the course of years. And then since March, they've had over 150,000. And obviously, we've seen the news about Teladoc with Livongo merging, American Well is going public. So can you tell us a bit more about Providence, both, you know, any stats you have on telehealth usage before and then because of COVID, and then the other things you were just about to get into around what you've accelerated, how have, you know, have you accelerated investments in certain companies because of the COVID crisis? Yeah. I echo your previous guests' views around telehealth adoption. What we saw is that in 2019, um, I believe around 11% of consumers actually utilized telehealth in some capacity. Within the first, I think, five or so, or maybe six months of 2020, that number increased to 46%. And our belief is that we'll hit 1 billion virtual visits across across all healthcare by the end of 2020, which is a pretty stark increase over past years. And I think the main driver is that we feel the majority, the overwhelming majority of those who are using virtual visits or telehealth are first-time users, mainly driven by the fact that they just can't see their doctors and they need care. And so this digital virtual revolution within healthcare is something that we're seeing happen live. It's not something that we'd expect. Usually when you think about healthcare, you think about gradual change over you know, a dozen years, um, not within the, the course of 24 months. Um, and the, the growth in virtual care has driven our investment thesis in a variety of different areas. I'd say one area that's kind of been hanging around the hoop with respect to the venture world over the last four years is remote patient monitoring. So essentially enabling providers to keep an eye on their patients at home through technology, whether it be wearables or whether it be smart cameras or devices that can just kind of sit in the corner and and measure activity. We've seen a significant increase in interest in that area over the last several months as uh, investors and health systems alike have realized that you need those type of solutions to really empower virtual care. I mean, a telehealth, a phone call or a video visit can only do so much. You really need to monitor patients um, in the home and two of our portfolio companies have really done a good job at, at driving that. Um, our portfolio company, Twistle, um, has helped enable our health system to essentially monitor patients who exhibited COVID-19 symptoms at home. So they were able to use the Twistle interface to essentially provide feedback on, hey, I'm feeling a little bit ill. Here are my symptoms. Should I go seek out care or should I stay at home? And that would help really triage a lot of the the patients who were experiencing trouble at that time. Another one of our companies, Wildflower Health, which provides a mobile platform for pregnant women, help our OB patients really feel connected to their doctors when they may not have felt safe coming in for a regular check-in. And so having that direct line of communication to our provider was really helpful. So that's just one area. I've seen so many other areas that we view as as growing in importance post-COVID. How big is Providence? Like, can you give us a sense of your size and scale? Providence, from a size perspective, we have over 50 hospitals. We have over 1,000 outpatient facilities of some kind that ranges from ambulatory care centers to primary care clinics to freestanding skilled nursing facilities and everything pretty much in between. Um, in addition, Providence has a health plan that covers around 600,000 lives. 
um, in the Washington and Oregon uh, states. And then lastly, we have several value-based care initiatives and ACOs that cover around, I think, 1.25 million lives um, across our seven states that we operate in. Um, and so from a scale perspective, Providence is one of the largest health systems and integrated delivery networks in the country. Yeah, and it's super impressive. And, you know, given that you and your role in the venture arm work with all these different stakeholders across those divisions, I think you have a pretty interesting view of what their challenges are. So one thing, we've heard this is a paradoxical crisis, right, in that it's a crisis because of a health pandemic, but many hospitals and health systems have had to furlough people because there isn't enough elective surgery and other procedure volume. So that's that's one thing that's we're weighing. But then on the payer side, since people aren't utilizing these services as much as we thought they would, payers have a lot more money right now that they have to spend because of the medical loss ratios, it seems. So I'd love to hear maybe some of the things you all are hearing or experiencing in Providence and how, apart from the investing arm, you've adjusted the operations over the past few months to, to deal with those issues. Yeah, since uh, Providence is based on, on the West Coast, we were hit early on in the COVID pandemic. Um, and so Washington and California are two of our biggest states. I think the first COVID case happened in Washington. And so once that first wave hit us, the entire organization shifted towards um, addressing COVID. And that includes my team and pretty much every operational group within Providence. And so, you know, I think just to see that combined effort was somewhat inspiring in terms of even if you weren't a clinician or patient facing, everyone was focused on that goal. But at the same time, there were financial considerations that impacted every health system that was hit by COVID in some capacity. We pretty much had to freeze all capital expenditures in some form. As you mentioned, there were furloughs, um, not only for our system, but across most healthcare groups. But I think where we're at now from a health system standpoint is we've seen things start to open up more within our states of operation and electives have picked up to a degree where we need more access points and, and utilizing technology to help increase access to meet the demand from patients. And so all those elective procedures and all those doctor's appointments that were canceled or rescheduled as a result of COVID are back on the menu now. And for patients at this point, since they've been waiting for so long, it's just an access question, meaning if I can get my care at a Providence or I can get my care at a competing health system, I'll go to the competing health system if they can provide the care faster. Um, and so our model now has shifted towards improving access towards patients to help ensure that we don't lose any um, that, that we would have had and also capture what the market can offer. That's that's really interesting on the, on the okay. provider side. On the payer side, I mean, given that you all have a, your own kind of health plan, how has the experience been there? Yeah, on the payers, so payers in general, as, as you mentioned, Shiv, is, have generally not felt the impact uh, yet with respect to COVID. I, I think, you know, if you look at United Health and some of the other large payers, uh, they announced record profits out during their earnings releases. I think they'll be some sort of a potential reckoning in that industry. I don't know what it'll be um, in terms of, you know, their MLRs and ensuring that you know, they return some of those premiums back to their employer customers just because the utilization fell down a cliff in for, for about three months there. And so I think there'll be some sort of reckoning there. 
I think from the Providence Health Plan perspective, we're a relatively small plan in, in the scheme of things, um, but similar to larger plans, I'd say those trends have been echoed across our industry and you know, our, our health plan continues to work closely with our hospitals and, and our provider and our ambulatory care network teams um, to ensure that we're able to provide care for patients when, when we can. And so it hasn't really had too much of an impact on our health plan, I'd say. And then, and just to be clear, I'm not as close to that as other parts of our business, but it is something that I feel like health plans in general, there'll be some sort of like a reckoning of some kind. I don't know what it'll be. Um, actually genuinely curious to see how it'll turn out in that industry. Same. I mean, um, I'm sure if you have any car insurance like Geico, there's that Geico give back that they've been talking about where because people were putting on fewer miles on their cars in the heart of COVID, you know, they decided to proactively do that. I wonder what the health plans will do. Um, going back to some of the trends you've seen that have accelerated, I, I've seen the same where like RPM remote patient monitoring was was there. People knew it would be promising, but it wasn't you know, just like telehealth, the utilization numbers on a per member per month basis weren't as high to justify going all in on it, but COVID was the forcing function. What are some of the most exciting companies or innovations you're looking at in RPM or other things that you think are here to stay because of COVID? Yeah, I'll hit on a couple of larger areas that I see a significant amount of growth over the next few years. Uh, One area is in the Medicaid solution realm. And so what we're seeing with respect to the shift of the payer population within Providence and more broadly speaking overall is just a significant growth in the Medicaid population as a result of the economic impact and fallout of COVID. And so tools that can help empower our Medicaid population to take better care of their health, whether that's through direct virtual primary care offerings or through improving the enrollment experience for Medicaid, which I'm not sure if you're aware, it's just a, it's almost a significantly complex procedure to try to even get on Medicaid. And for a lot of individuals who are suffering economically, that's just a, a struggle. And so we've been digging around to that realm, as well as providing care for patients, Medicaid patients at the community point of care versus having them come into our health system when they're sick and, and when they're facing challenges. Um, if we can go into their community and make a difference there, then that ends up resulting in more improvement downstream for us. And, and that's kind of the whole social determinants of health realm that's out there. A couple of other areas that I'll highlight quickly, improving hospital operations. I think another aspect that was laid bare with respect to COVID is just the inefficiencies related to both supply chain management as well as just general hospital patient flow type challenges that hospitals face as a result of COVID when we had both a significant increase in a certain type of patient and a significant decrease in another type of patient. Matching that with the needs of each of those patients was a significant challenge that we saw. And so, you know, supply chains need to be more agile in healthcare um, and have taken a little bit more focus from a health system standpoint, we've seen. Um, And then lastly, I think one of the areas that I see a significant amount of change over the next few years is in the workforce optimization realm. Um, As you alluded to, there have been some regulatory changes with respect to telehealth. Um, There's also been a significant amount of regulatory changes related to the workforce, and that's driven a significant shift where health systems have realized the importance of maximizing our existing labor resources so that we can care for our patients more effectively, as well as engage our 
providers in a way that keeps them happy with Providence and happy with the organization overall and not feeling burnt out. And so we've seen a lot more uptick in that realm of activity as well. On that last point, that's really interesting. Could you provide any more specific examples? Are you talking about like scope of practice or interprofessional team-based care so that a physician or a nurse can do less, can delegate more to like a CNA or an MA or PA? Yeah, sure. That's exactly what what I'm talking about. I I think, you know, just kind of giving some high-level numbers around kind of the impact of labor costs um, within the healthcare system overall, I think around 50% or so of total hospital expenses are driven by labor. Um, And, you know, I think if you look at the overall employment market, I think 13% or so of the U.S. workforce is healthcare-related employment. But health systems in general in the past haven't really done a good job of utilizing our talent efficiently. And so one of the things that we've seen a significant focus on is enabling our providers to practice at the top of their license. And so essentially, it's kind of like a reverse funnel where our doctors and physicians can focus on the most complex cases, while the one level below would be the physician assistants and nurse practitioners can assume more responsibility for kind of the general population of patients. And then RNs can help manage a lot of the follow-up care and education instead of what the nurse practitioners and the PAs would do. And then you have the medical assistants, CNAs, and other type of providers helping fill in the gaps that the RNs have moved up on. And I think what what that results in is both better satisfaction for our caregivers because they're utilizing their time more effectively and, and doing things at the top of their level and what they've been trained to do and what they have the skills to do. And at the same time, improving efficiency for our system, as well as reducing costs from a time perspective. And so that, that's kind of the, the shift that we're seeing. I think, in fairness, we really haven't done that historically. If you look at the healthcare industry, I think, you know, healthcare staffing in the past has generally been, well, let's just add on a couple of more folks um, to, uh, to a department, um, rather than trying to determine how many we actually need. Um, and you know what their skills are and what skills are required. You know now with the advent and acceptance of telehealth by a broader population of caregivers or uh, providers, we're seeing that health systems can actually adopt a, a wider workforce in terms of you know we could have a geographically diverse group of employees in terms of you know we don't necessarily need to have 100% of our employees within our region which opens up a lot of opportunities, both from a caregiver perspective in terms of enabling them to have better hours or or have better lifestyle. If if they need to take care of their children, they could do a fully virtual type model and and that's increasing in acceptance over time. And that's an area that I continue to see some growth in and the enabling technologies behind that will be critical as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, we, we, it's funny, we actually have the head of Oscar Health coming up soon uh, on the podcast as well. And they've obviously done a lot of that telehealth first kind of approach to primary care. You know, I couldn't agree more. I mean, Osmosis is a fully distributed company and, you know, there will eventually be a time where apart from procedural requirements, people will be able to, you know, practice from home or practice from wherever they need to be. Providence has expanded rapidly. I think you guys started in just Washington and now you're seven states. Are you thinking that potentially COVID and this this telehealth adoption will lead to even wider scale consolidation of practices? And before in the past, like systems would have geographic constraints, like Hopkins was doing it a lot in the mid-Atlantic. 
but are you thinking that eventually there'll be pockets where maybe Providence and Cleveland Clinic would be looking at the same sort of provider network to bring on to their umbrella? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Shiv. I think to address your, your first point around kind of consolidation in the market, um, uh, you know, the, the way I look at that is there's going to be a lot of struggling health systems coming out of COVID. I mean, it's still a crisis today in my, in my mind, and there are many health systems that are kind of suffering, and, and in order for them to survive, they're going to have to align themselves with other health systems who are more financially secure um, or other organizations, whether that be payers or a private equity firms, everything in between in terms of ensuring the financial stability of those organizations. And so you know, industry consolidation is something that doesn't necessarily keep me up at night, but it is something that I'm, I'm keeping an eye out on. I think that the second point around kind of the, the labor pool and looking across geographies for that, I think that's something that is more beneficial to an organization like Providence or West Coast Systems, which have traditionally faced uh, provider shortages just given kind of the dynamics of our markets. Uh, I think nurse recruiting in, in California is just really difficult. There's just so much so much demand, so, so little supply of talented nurses. But if you look out east, it's a little bit easier. And so I think that um, enabling health systems to recruit across geographies is something that will help improve the, the care delivery for patients. I think the one thing I'll note is it's really all reliant on whether regulatory changes remain intact. So specifically around cross-state licensure, which has kind of stuck around, but I don't know for how long. And I know that that is an area that will likely potentially go back to the status quo. But I think if that can be overcome, as well as the credentialing challenges that come with, you know, working with providers across different states, um, if those can be resolved, then, you know, there's a whole new labor pool and a whole new way of doing business for many providers out there as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, five years ago, I spoke to John Thomas, who was president of the FSMB, the Federation of State Medical Boards, and he was talking about an idea that was gaining traction at the time, which now seems obvious. It's a compact of reciprocal licensing arrangements where if you're licensed in Washington, you can practice in Oregon. And if you're licensed in Oregon, you can practice in Washington. Um, makes a lot of sense in this age of COVID, it seems. And then also, what does that mean from an insurance perspective? So like one of our yeah. uh, advisors and investor companies is Coveras, which is a medical malpractice insurance company. And they have to talk about scope of practice and you know whether the malpractice claims, if you're based in Washington and you're doing telehealth practice on somebody in Florida, what does that mean for your tail end, tail coverage on malpractice and, and things like that? One last thing around the kind of telehealth reimbursement, um, because I know that's an area that interests a lot of people. You know, my guess around kind of how that'll shake out is that, you know, payers are going to use the growth in telehealth that we've talked about here as a way to essentially narrow the gap between the virtual and telehealth reimbursement versus in-person reimbursement so that essentially they can lower in-person reimbursement while either keeping virtual reimbursement the same or a little bit lower than that. And, you know, that's going to be an interesting thing to see just because, you know, it's, it's kind of like a double-edged sword when you have so much virtual adoption, pairs are going to be like, well, you're going to need a really good reason to come in for an in-person visit now. And so it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. That is really interesting. And I'd never heard about that. That is a really good observation. So I know we're at time, but I did want to give you one more opportunity to say anything else that uh, you think would be interesting to our audience, given your role and background and what Providence is doing. So any other final thoughts from your side? 
Yeah, I mean, I think COVID was a really impactful event for our system and for the healthcare system overall. And from a healthcare worker perspective, you know, our workforce at Providence has done an amazing job in caring for our patients. I highly doubt things will ever return back to any sort of semblance of normal. But what I do believe is that there's going to be an increased adoption of new technologies, and it's going to rely a lot on the young professionals out there, whether you're in school right now or whether you're just graduating, you're going to be the drivers of change. And we're going to see a lot of innovation. And I've seen it at least in the last month or so in terms of companies having solutions which have not been seen before and having adoption, which I've not been seen before. And we're going to rely on kind of that next generation workforce, really help guide that change and and be that catalyst for growth in the industry overall. So I'm excited to see how it happens. I know you asked me earlier in the podcast around kind of how the last 10 years have have kind of changed. I'm really excited for the next 10 years and seeing how things evolve over that. Heck, I'm just excited to see what the next month brings at this point. I yeah. can't even think 10 years from now. But uh, <laughs> with, with that, Cyril, I really want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. It was super insightful. And I think you were the first healthcare VC we've had on the podcast. So uh, wearing that hat is really an interesting uh, perspective to add to Ray's line. Great. Really appreciate it. And thanks again for the opportunity to be here and appreciate the time. And with that, I'm Shivuglani. Thank you for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.